Hello and welcome to what is now Season 5 of Pebble in the Pond podcast. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year, ANZMHA hosts several leading mental health conferences which give us the opportunity to connect with incredible industry leaders, lived experience speakers, researchers, academics and frontline workers as they share fascinating stories and projects which are changing the face of mental health within our community. Listen in as we go one-on-one with these inspiring people and dive deep into their work. It is truly a privilege to bring you their stories. Our podcast episodes may contain content which could be triggering for some people. If you need support, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or visit the Get Help page on anzmh.asn.au. Join us for Pebble in the Pond each Tuesday and let's get into Season 5. Today's podcast is an absolute cracker. From brain surgery on sharks to the highlands of Papua New Guinea, to living in a cave and writing a book, Dr. Korshik Ram has many stories to tell. Abandoning a career in Australia and writing a book in a Thailand jungle in just over two months, Dr. Ram experienced a transformative experience. In this episode, we talk about the fight or flight response with people experiencing anxiety or depression. We also discuss the research behind it and our trust in our own bodies. We talk about AI and the innovation in AI within mental health in which Dr. Ram has significant experience. Thank you for this incredible episode and we welcome Dr. Ram. Dr. Koshik Ram, thanks so much for joining us and thanks for spending a bit of time with us and sharing your stories, your insights with our listeners. I appreciate your time. Absolute pleasure, Sam. Wonderful to be here. Thanks so much. Koshik, do you want us to give our listeners a bit of a runway into context as to your history, how you got into the space you're in at the moment? And as we go along that journey, I'm, I'm keen to ask you some other questions, but I'd love, to, I'd love to see what really fascinated you about getting into the work that you're into at the moment. Absolutely. So for me, I didn't start off with mental health. My original interest was in biology. I started off with animal behavior and neuroethology. For my master's, I did a brain surgery on sharks, actually. So you're looking at the behavioral mechanisms that modulate their electroreception. Wow. That was prior to me entering neuroscience. I was actually in the highlands of Papua New Guinea after my master's degree. I was only 23 at that time. And I had a very surreal experience about consciousness. And it was actually a near-death experience. And that sparked the interest in understanding what is in between our two ears. I had no idea about the human brain at that point. And so that's when I started neuroscience. And I started with neuroimaging. Another reason I, I went into human research was I didn't like working with animals. I love animals, but not in a animal husbandry sense where you have to use wild animals for research. So that ethically didn't quite work with me. So these two events drove me into neuroscience and it started with neuroimaging. At that time, the human connectome was quite popular, which is mapping the connections between different brain regions. And you can connect it in terms of 
cost and efficiency. You can connect the human brain in terms of mental health disorders. You can connect it in terms of what we call rich hubs, which is hub networks within the brain, which are where all of the brain connections are coming to. So there's various ways of mapping it in terms of the human connectome. So that's what I did for my PhD. And then following on from that, I took a bit of an excursion. I, I moved to Thailand for a little bit and lived in a cave and wrote a book. And then... Wait, tell us, that's not something that's very common. So you went to Thailand. Did you know when you were going to Thailand what you were going to do? Or did it come yes. to you while you were there? So the idea to write the book had been with me since my near-death experience in 2008. Right. And so it took another seven years for me to crystallize that idea. And once it happened, I pretty, pretty much did a career sabotage, abandoned my career in Sydney, Australia, and moved to an island in a split second. So yeah, there, there was no thought involved in it. It was literally my heart just yearning for it and me abandoning my career and going with it. So I was in Thailand for eight months. Three months I lived inside a cave, <laughs> which was wow. out basically as a survival mission. And what made you want to do that? It, it didn't happen by choice. So it was all coincidental events. I arrived on the island to write my book. I finished writing a book within two months. So something that I held in my heart for seven years, I finished writing in two months, but I couldn't let it go. To let it go would mean, would mean to publish it. And at that point, I wasn't ready. So I stayed on the island and I met another author who was actually an architect from London. And he basically was living in this cave and he was moving away and he said, why don't you take the custodianship of this cave? And so I ended up living in this area, which is secluded in nature. There's the nearest resort would have been at least a kilometer, a kilometer and a half away. So civilization is fairly close, but I was pretty deep into the jungle and that created an environment where I was so connected with my body, so connected with nature. I mean, an experience like that, you can't fabricate when you go for like a hike, you know, a couple of days in the forest. Yeah. This is something that transforms your nervous system. It transforms your daily habits and patterns. My sleeping patterns changed. My eating patterns changed. How I moved in the forest changed. Everything for example, if a leaf is falling off a tree, it has meaning because it shows you the direction of the wind, you know, that means something in the forest. So living like that in the purest state in nature was the state from which I wrote my book. So that, that all merged into one experience that has probably been the height of my human experience. Sounds... So interesting and fascinating. I, I just, because you hear about people doing a, a retreat or a couple of days here or there or a five-day silent retreat or something to, you know, get back to themselves and, and try and get that intuition back with their bodies, mind and spirit. And 
and to do it for a few months. So I assume there would be no power. Oh, did you kill your own food and stuff? Was it, were you eating off the land? There were some things that I'd get off the land. Yep. So one of my friends in the forest, he found a reishi mushroom and we used that for reishi tea for like six weeks. The food itself, I took a boat to a nearby island where they had a supermarket and I bought porridge. And in the forest, I would make bush porridge every morning. So I'd light fire in the evening. The coals would still survive till morning. And then I'll use those coals to reignite the flame to make breakfast in the morning. And that would normally be my one meal of the day. Water would normally come from a stream nearby. Because I was in forest, there was no electricity, no light, no, no showers. I would just go into the ocean instead. Mm. And so in those scenarios, uh, every three or four days, I would go back to the resort to charge my laptop so I could write on it. I have a decent meal, you know, every few days. But for the most part, when you are free from a cognitive environment where you're not interacting with people, your cognitive cost isn't that much. So, I mean, the brain at rest uses 20% of your metabolic energy, even though it weighs 2% of your body mass, it's 10 times more than any other organ. And when you're in forest, that gets a opportunity to rest. And that is an extremely powerful place to be in when there is no chatter, not even of your own. Yeah. So you were, yeah. So did it take a few days for the chatter to stop? To just be? For me, I normally don't think that much. Yeah. <laughs> so when I was in forest, that state heightened. Yes. But to think of it now, it did take at least three weeks for me to adjust to that cave environment. Because personally, I like to work out. Fitness is a big part of my values. And so when I started working out at nature, it didn't feel natural. And then the movements, once I stopped trying to work out, because that has a certain energy, you know, it has a metabolic cost as well as a motivational cost as well. So you're motivating yourself to move. But in nature, movement came very naturally. So once I abandoned this city lifestyle of allocating time for movement, that's when natural movement appeared in forest. And so a typical day, you'd wake up, you have your porridge, and then would you just sit and think? Would you, would you just open and start writing when you had an inspirational moment? Or, as, or was it something that you were just going with the flow, walk around? Immerse yourself in nature. Absolutely. So for me, this was a very intuitive time. I'd go to bed at after sunset because there's nothing really to do. I can't use any technology. There's no internet. Uh, so once I go to bed, I would normally wake up around two in the morning. And that was because almost in a barbaric fashion, like thoughts would start to come into my perception. And so I would wake up and I'll 
just grab a paper and scramble some things down. And then I'll wake up the next morning, so at sunrise, and then I'll look at the paper and then I'll translate what I had scribbled down into the laptop during the day. And sometimes that would happen, sometimes that won't happen. So during this time, as long as insights were coming through, I'd be noting them down. And then when I'd be sitting in the resort charging my laptop, I'd collate all of that together and uh, make it into something sensible. So it was almost as if the book was written in a dream state. Mm. And so when I'm in an awake state, I was translating the dream state into something sensible. Wow. That's really fascinating. Really interesting because it's not an approach or a, a way of being that you hear about too often these days. With so much going on, we lead busy lives. And to slow down and get the opportunity to go and just spend some time sitting and being would be incredible. Did you feel re rejuvenated, relaxed at the end of it? Did you want to stay there forever? I did want to stay there forever. Did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it's something that you lose desire for the material world. So it's such a pure form of existence that the material world doesn't make sense anymore. So when I did return back to Sydney, it took me at least 10 months to readjust to even the fact that I was surrounded by four walls. That seemed really unnatural. The fact that when I would look up, I can't, I can't see the sky. So all of these things took time to get reaccustomed to. And so what were the key, obviously, you know, people need to grab the book and, and read all about it, but do you want to tell us what were some of the key strokes of insight? What were some of the key things that that time gave you that you took from it and thought, okay, I'm going to do some things differently now, the approaches that I come with, the thinking, what changed? Perhaps the most profound change was in my own physiology. So in the forest, I was walking at a slower pace because I was walking barefoot. So if you happen to, you know, bump your foot into something like a rock, you, you do get hurt. So just the nature of walking barefoot for eight months, that slowed down my speed. And so, because the foot itself has 28 joints and 33 bones, it has a lot of articulation. And when you're in forest and your foot is going into all those different articulations, you gain a tactile sense, which means that you start seeing with your feet and feeling with the eyes. So your senses start to shift perception. And so those sorts of things have remained with me, even though now I'm in the city. So I do still walk at a slow pace. I do still feel the earth when I walk. I do still have this, I guess, peripheral awareness of what's around me. Those are perhaps untangible ways of measuring progress, but it has been the most profound progress that has been in my own journey. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. So I guess, so, so all that, the journey of that, 
of the time in the cave. The book isn't about your time in the cave. Is it about what well, tell us what it's what it is about? The book itself is about the connection between brain, body, and spirit. Yes. So it has a very spiritual undertone to it. And ultimately, it's about the heart. So a large part of my work, a large part of my research is talking about the heart. Because as a neuroscientist, once I started understanding the brain, I realized that it was only half the story. The brain and body are connected. And as a neuroscientist, and especially when I was working in the Human Connectome project, we only look at the brain and we don't consider the processes that are happening in the body. When you combine the two, then you realize, for me personally, was that the heart is governing a lot of these psychological processes. Depending on the rhythm of your heart, if it's, if it's under high arousal, your cognition is completely different. We know this from, you know, the Tanvilishan thought of when we're in the fight or flight state. And on the contrast to that, when we are calm and relaxed, our cognition is completely different. It is not constrained by fear anymore. So these sorts of processes were things that I talk about in the book, but I do it in a way devoid of science. So I share more in the form of story. And so the book is written in a folklore format rather than a scientific format. Part of the reason for that was it's much easier for me to share stories which allow people to suspend their disbelief. When you share these things from science, people's logical mind kicks in. And a lot of things that I talk about, especially as I mentioned, walking slow, not rushing through life. These are intangible things which normally you don't quantify in terms of improvement. But for me, these are very real improvements. And so to share it in a story format gave it a strength that I couldn't have acquired through science. Mm. And so the, the, the book itself is called Hidden World. Exactly. And people can get that online through any major book outlet? Yes. So all major book outlets have it. It's also on my website. So drkoshigram.com. And yeah, it's, I think we'll be publishing the second edition very, very soon as well. Did you get to go back to the cave? No, we pretty much sold out of the first edition. So uh, yeah, so it will be republished. Who did you leave the custodianship of the cave to when you left? I, I didn't. Basically, I did a farewell ceremony for the cave. Oh, good. Because I couldn't... Because I was stay, spending so much time away from people, I didn't find anyone to actually hand over the, the custodianship. So hopefully someone has yeah. made good use of it. That's an that's incredible story. But I mean, you were talking about the rhythm of the heart and what's the link with that as it relates to releasing stress, overwhelm and anxiety? How does that relate? Is it, is it all about the pace? of the heart, of the rhythm of the heart? The, 
The way I think about it is having an agile nervous system. And so an agile nervous system can be measured using vagal tone. Vagal tone is basically the strength of communication between brain and body. So, and we measure it through biofeedback devices like heart rate variability. High heart rate variability means you have high vagal tone. And so because it's something specific, measurable and tangible, and what can be measured can be improved, we can then see how it translates into mental health. So having high heart rate variability, even to acquire that, you need rest, you need certain levels of activity during the day. All of these things boost your mood, boost your capacity to tolerate stress. And so that's part of having high heart rate variability. Low heart rate variability is evident in illnesses, both psychological, physiological, and physical. And in these cases, we can see the outcomes of it as well. So someone with low heart rate variability, for example, if it's in anxiety, they find it very difficult to shift from an aroused state into a calm state. So that is low heart rate variability. Someone who is in a depressive state they also have low heart rate variability because it's very hard for them to shift from a almost a catatonic state to a active state. So even though they're two sides of the same spectrum, they're both low heart rate variability because it's very difficult to shift state. Someone who has high heart rate variability, it means that if the moment demands them to be active, for example, excitable, they can do that. And if the moment demands, for example, in an employee setting, if you are a leader and someone walks into your office and they, even though you are in a cognitive space, you can shift from that space into an empathetic space very quickly and then pay attention, listen. A lot of times these things are very difficult to do, especially in a, a fast-paced working environment. So to be able to do it on demand is high heart rate variability. Yeah. And is that something that you can obviously take control of once you have that awareness and trying to change that? Yeah. So I personally teach how to do it and I use what I call nervous system training to do this. So we use movement because movement is something that cannot be lied with. Uh, it's very easy to fake an emotion or even say, oh, meditation was great, but we don't have definitive measures of that. With movement, what I do is I induce a certain level of stress and I teach the nervous system to s remain in a parasympathetic state under duress. And when we inoculate stress to a certain point, the capacity of the nervous system has increased to the point where stress now becomes a trigger for relaxation rather than the traditional fight or flight. So that is a complete reversal mm. of the instinctual response. And that's when I know that the rewiring of the brain has taken place. So in moments of threat, when People do the opposite. They breathe, they're calm, they're relaxed. This is happening instinctually now. 
without their conscious perception. So there's no awareness to this. There's no telling yourself or mindset. The nervous system kicks in by itself. It's an autonomic response. So this is the level to which we can train our nervous system and remain in this state until the moment demands for us to transition. And is that what we call the optimal performance to be able to have your, your brain, the, the, the neurosystem, the nervous system and the brain working in conjunction, tandem, in rhythm? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So this synergy between brain and body can be measured and that's what we call vagal tone. And this is the beauty of it when both brain and body are working in synergy together. Some people equate this to the flow state. And flow state for me is when you are moving in harmony with this moment. And that is also the syncing between brain, body, and behavior. It's mm, great, isn't it? <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. And so you train that. That's what you do. So you have programs that train people to get in that peak state, an optimal state? Yes. So I personally call it precognition. Yes. Because it, I'm not talking about precognition as in predicting some future event, but rather the internal processing that happens before it reaches our conscious perception. So it's precognition. Yes. And basically this pathway of processing begins with the heart. The moment your heart rate changes, your everything internally in your organ systems changes well, your metabolic rate changes, your cardiac, renal, digestive functions, all of it change depending on your heart rate. And these processes happen before it reaches your subconscious. And I do make a distinction between subconscious and unconscious as well. Unconscious are thoughts that you're not aware of, but the subconscious are referred to as the subcortical structures that are below our conscious perception. So there's so many processes that happen in between when the heart rate changes and the subconscious. And so by the time information reaches what we call the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, various levels of information processing have already happened. And then the thalamus relays this information to our conscious perception. And that is what we call cognition. So I make a distinction between cognition and precognition. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, the way you phrase that is really interesting. I just, I think hearing you talk about it, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? And, but I, it's fascinating how beautiful the, the body is, isn't it? Like the, the power of it. And when you understand the science of it, the way you explain how the system works makes logical sense, but then implementing that in a practical sense can be probably easier said than done? It's, it's easier said than done when you try to get it without understanding mechanism. Yes. Because I've mapped out mechanism, I can actually use brute force to train, which sounds a little bit cruel, but it's yeah. not. It's actually teaching someone to, first of all, acquire the parasympathetic state. Yes. This is something that even I've shown to yoga teachers, and bear in mind, some of them have been teaching yoga for 30 years. Mm. They're not students of yoga, they're yoga teachers. And they haven't experienced a true parasympathetic state. 
because we, when we do it, we measure the brain-body connection. So when they acquire that state, the first thing that happens is they feel completely exhausted, sometimes almost sick, because that rest and restorative phase ha doesn't often get the opportunity to emerge. So when it does emerge, our body does go into true rest and restoration. And so, you know, all the lactic acid start to, starts to appear in the body. It goes into repair processes. People feel exhausted. They feel like they don't even want to move anymore. And so once we start spending more time in this state, that's when the rewiring process happens because especially in mental illnesses, anxiety, for example, the fight or flight state is so familiar that they actually feel threatened by the parasympathetic state. They feel threatened by calm. They feel threatened by what is normally meant to feel safe. So to re-familiarize someone to a parasympathetic, calm, relaxed state is quite an interesting process. And when you get to that stage, that's the natural baseline from which you can build upon. And then you can introduce the, introduce the building blocks of how to be mobile in a calm and relaxed state. What your thinking is like in a calm and relaxed state. What your senses perceive in that calm and relaxed state. So all of these things are then augmented onto the baseline. It's, yeah, it's, uh, that's incredible. And the evidence, you know, how that, the research is finding that that is having a major impact on reducing anxiety and, and depression? Yes, absolutely. It's incredible. Yeah, so especially with anxiety. Yes. Because anxiety is an overactive fear network, and that is a very direct relationship with the rhythm of your heart. So anxiety is a very easy one to treat when you start working in this methodology. And does this work for adults, for kids, for anybody who suffers or who's experiencing from anxiety? I'd say anyone with a beating heart. Is that right? Yeah. Everyone should know. Basically, if you, if you don't trust your body to know what to do, how do you trust yourself? Mm. So this is, this trust in your own body is primary and all else follows afterwards. Really interesting. I'd like to, Koshik, right? I'd like to sort of visit something that's really topical at the moment is AI, and and especially in the mental health field, people are really interested to see where technology is going and the innovation that's happening in this space. I'd love to get your insights, your thoughts on AI and how how it's being implemented, either in the clinical sense or in the workflows or yeah, I'd just love to get your insights on where you think this is all heading as it relates to mental health as well. Absolutely. So just to provide some context, my previous role at the University of Sydney was implementing an AI infrastructure for clinical workflow. So I did it specifically for neurology and we were working with patients with MS, multiple sclerosis. And with MS, it's very easy for AI to first of all, diagnose and monitor disease progression because the lesions that are in the brain are very easy to track using computer vision. So 
now that infrastructure has been built and deployed, it now houses 75,000 MS patients. Depression or anxiety is a much more bigger task. There are ways of predicting depression. There are ways of measuring depression. And currently, for example, there are some AI models that track whether you are in a depressive state based on your sleeping patterns and activity, activity rhythms. And it does it with a 90% accuracy. Anxiety as well, depending on if you can separate heart rate activity from physical activity, then you can start tracking anxiety levels as well. The problem here is we are what we call a signal problem. So we are looking at data, the datafication of patients. And when we do that, we get rid of context and meaning. And this is what the signal problem is. So any biosignal can be useful. In a technology company that I'm working with, we use data from brain, heart, and skin. So all of these indicators provide us a very clear understanding of emotion. These are biosignals which are very hard to basically fabricate or lie. But at the same time, we have to consider the aspects, the very human aspects of working in the mental health space. Because personally, I find that AI can be extremely useful in diagnosis and disease progression. In treatment, this is where I, I have my own reservations. For example, I was in Africa a few years ago. And in East Africa, they have this very basic bench where grandmas sit on. And they've trained grandmas to provide mental health support. And so whether it be a father whose kid is acting out or a woman facing domestic violence, they can come sit on this bench anonymously and talk to the grandma. And this solution, if you think about it from an AI perspective, AI can do it in a much more cost-effective way, a much more accessible way, and a much more efficient way. But does it do a better job than the grandma? And so these are questions that are emerging right now. Because AI can very efficiently and cost-effectively replace therapeutics. But does it mean it's better? And also, we got to consider the rate of evolution of AI. Because at a certain point, I mean, already AI has surpassed human cognition. And at a certain point, we might not be able to follow the capacity of AI. So AI would have gone so far beyond human cognition that it's now intangible to us. And that's, that's very real. It's the rate of evolution of AI. And so how AI is thinking about the human brain from beyond the cognitive threshold is something very interesting and we don't actually have a comprehension of yet. There seems to be a lot happening in this space right around the world, doesn't there, with just AI in general and day-to-day -day life and trying to make things easier. 
as it relates to mental health, it's been, it's always been such a personal, such a uh, one-to-one sort of therapeutic service-based sector industry. Do you see, well, what role moving forward do you see that AI will play in the mental health space as far as service delivery goes? There are already services that are chat-based. An example is called Replica, which uses AI chatbots, which anthropomorphic. So it has a very human characteristic to it, which kind of, for me, alludes to what Alan Turing was talking about in the 1950s. If people are not aware of, Alan Turing was the person who invented the first computer. And he came up with theories around AI. And he came up with a test in the 1950s when he created the first computer, which he called The Imitation Game. The Imitation Game is also a movie based on Alan Turing. So the test was at what point does machine intelligence become indistinguishable from human intelligence? And that to me is a very scary, smart place to be because at that point, a chatbot is indistinguishable from a human. And of course, there's many benefits to this. Loneliness, for example, is huge. And so many, so many individuals are seeking an emotional connection from a machine. The evolutionary consequences of this is very, it's a very interesting space of evolution because when we have a human-to-human connection, we build trust, we build empathy, we build compassion, we build a responsibility based on the behavior of someone else. And sometimes people hurt us. Sometimes they do things that we don't agree with. But how we go about shaping the relationship after that is how we build a connection, how we build a friendship, how we build a family. When you take those things away, for example, ChatGPT, it's already coded in that it, it can't be violent, it can't be angry, it can't be, you know, it can't call someone a dumbass, for example. Yes. So when you take away these responses, which is very human, mm. and even though it come, comes across as very friendly, you've taken away the very ability for a human to gauge trust. And that's what I have an issue with. So it's, I'd rather teach people to ways in which they can overcome hurt or overcome boredom or overcome stressful or confronting conversations rather than dilute that to the point where that no longer exists. And basically at that point, humans are now artificial and AI is intelligent. That's an important distinction, isn't it? If we look at the the stuff that you're doing with leadership programs for enterprise government organizations, What's the use case here? What's the, uh, what, what are people, what are the organizations doing with this stuff? What, what's the opportunity for you to go in and assist organizations with leadership stuff? Is it, a, 
You mentioned, I think, somewhere around performance addiction. I'd love to know what that is and how, when you, how organizations can use those services and what that means to them and the difference that can create. Absolutely. So one of the things that is very emergent right now is AI doesn't replace a person. What happens more so is people using AI are replacing people who don't use AI. So that's a very clear distinction. So in a workplace, for example, when we silently embedded AI into the clinical workflow at the University of Sydney, it didn't mean job losses. It meant more job opportunities. Mm. So for example, a neurologist, for them to actually look at a scan and then a follow-up scan and each scan takes 20 minutes to go slice by slice in an MRI, that's 40 minutes trying to figure out disease progression. AI does it in three seconds, not just for a single brain, for, but for thousands at a time. And it is also learning from it. So it has an accuracy of 99.96% compared to a human who has been in the field for 35 years and they only have an accuracy of 83%. Wow, that's incredible. So while a human might need a second opinion, AI does it better. So it's much more tangible for AI to do the hard labor where large data is involved. Mm -hmm. So, and then we make data AI friendly because that's what it can do better than humans, which then frees up more space for the neurologist to sit down with the patient so instead of spending 15 minutes with them, maybe the neurologist can now bring in empathy, compassion, maybe family support, mm. all of those very human skills that no AI can provide. So that's where I see real opportunity. Yeah, I love that. That sounds really interesting. And, and that makes sense. Get them doing the more meaningful parts and get the AI or the technology to do the arduous data number crunching sort of stuff. And it sounds like they're way more accurate and effective at it anyway. So that makes sense. Koshik, I mean, it's been really interesting having a chat to you. I, I think it's just, I learned a lot today and I, 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 it's just some of the insights that, that you've mentioned and some of the analogies that you've, that you've given and even some of the, the processes that you mentioned are really fascinating. And if, Oh, you mentioned it before, but if, if listeners want to go and find out more information, is it Dr. K Koshik Ram? Is that correct? Dot com? Yes. Uh, Dr. Koshik Ram. So D-R-K-A-U-S-H-I-K-R-A-M.com. That's my website. And I also have a YouTube channel where yep. I share a lot of this information for free for everyone to make it more accessible. And uh, I've got courses. I've got books which people can have access to. And uh, yeah, all my social handles are Dr. Koshik Ram, so yeah. you can't go wrong. You do online courses as well, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's an online course called Train Your Nervous System. And the processes that we discussed on this podcast, we go into that in detail. So the eight-level information processing pathway between brain and body, that's there. 
the stress inoculation exercises, all of it, everything that we've discussed is in that online course. And Kosha, you are on, I mean, reading your mission was really inspiring as well, which was to transform humanity from fear and lead from the heart. I find that very beautifully put. Did you, did that come in the cave? So as I mentioned, for me, anyone who has a beating heart has to know how to listen to that heart. And so that's where the mission came from. We spend so much time dwelling in our minds that we forget to listen to the heart. So when we talk about precognition, it's where the heart leads before the mind does. And that's where the mission comes from. Mm. Well, it's beautiful. And I encourage everybody to, to go and have a look at the website. Yeah, it's very interesting. And I find very fascinating a lot of the stuff on the website, a lot of information, very resourceful. So I just want to say thank you, Koshik, for your time. We appreciate the conversation. And thanks for sharing your story, your journey, your insights with our listeners. It's much appreciated. An absolute pleasure, Sam. And I really appreciate you having me here as well. And congratulations on building this huge following for this podcast. And I wish you all the best in its growth. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to share with your friends and colleagues. And if you know someone working in mental health that you'd like to see featured on the podcast, please email any suggestions to us at membership at anzmh.asn.au. You can also stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to sharing our next episode with you next week.